0: Great work, all you non-Spanish speakers, pushing yourselves through that. Good job. And uh, muchas gracias a todos. I used to subscribe to a magazine called Hope. As you might guess from the name, Hope Magazine was full of Hopeful stories about hopeful people doing hopeful things. So, of course, Hope magazine went out of business. (laughs) In a society that swoons over sex and is mesmerized by murder, Hope magazine could not attract enough subscribers to survive. It was the end of hope. Now I subscribe to a magazine called Yes, with an exclamation point, published by the Positive Futures Network, headquartered, of course, on Bainbridge Island in Puget Sound. Yes magazine publishes what they call stories of hope and positive change. So I was a little startled to open the current issue of Yes to find a letter from one Victor Bremson of Seattle, just across the water from Bainbridge. The concept of hope is killing us, Mr. Brunson declared. We can't hope that climate change is going away because hope puts us to sleep and keeps us from doing what we have to do. We need to toss the idea of hope and remember what we love and what we have to do to protect what we love. Mr. Bremson seems to be confusing, hope and denial. His embargo, notwithstanding, the pages that followed were suffused with hope. Hope not as narcotic, but as spur and inspiration. Joan Southgate, we learn, is an 80-year-old retired social worker who walked 250 miles from Canada to Cleveland, retracing the route of the Underground Railroad. It seems Cleveland's Cleveland's Underground Railroad code name was Hope. And Southgate founded Restore Cleveland Hope to raise money to save the city's last remaining Underground Railroad house from demolition. Reflecting on the Underground Railroad, I wondered what Harriet Tubman and her passengers might have thought of Mr. Bremson's dismissal of Hope. Next, we read about the council of 13 indigenous grandmothers, spiritual leaders from native communities around the world who educate others about indigenous ways of life and pray for the healing of the earth. We're talking about hope, explains Hopi tribal elder Mona Palaka. We're having this hope, she says, that life will continue. Then, then there's the commentary by Laurent Dallos, who calls upon college graduates to tell their alma maters to divest from fossil fuels. I have grandchildren, he writes. They have every right to a secure and hopeful future. In these violent, disturbing discouraging times, hope abides with us and sustains us. In April 2012, Nebraskans, trying to block construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, experienced a stunning setback. With little debate, their legislature overwhelmingly passed a bill to pre-approve an undetermined route for the pipeline and grant TransCanada eminent domain authority to seize Nebraskans land for the project while barring public safety reviews. After months of organizing, advocacy, demonstrations, and lobbying, the coalition to stop the Keystone XL pipeline had been dealt a crushing blow. That night when members of the coalition gathered to mourn and to strategize, Unitarian Universalist psychologist and author Mary Pfeiffer asked them how they keep going and caring in the face of continual defeat. I do it for the relationships, one woman answered. The people who stand up to power are who I choose to be with. I'm a treasure, another said simply. I, I just don't know any other way to be. If I believe in something, I'll keep working. Another smiled and said, I fight because they expect me to give up. Then a new member, a young man from the Middle East named Wasam, spoke up. As a child, he had suffered greatly in refugee camps. But instead of embittering him, his experience filled him with love and determination to help others. Too many people dream only at night, he told the group. I like to dream during the day. All his life, he said, he had coped with despair by finding a way to be useful and to cheer others up. Hope, he said, became my identity. Hope became my identity. Hope is not something we have. It's something we are, or can be, by our own deliberate choice. Hope isn't something we consume, and if the supply is adequate, we thrive, and if not, we wither and die. Hope is something we produce. Like green plants creating their own food from light, and water, and carbon dioxide. Hope is something we generate, as a furnace generates heat. And if we generate enough of it, rock catches fire. Mass turns to magma. We become our own sun, a center of gravity particles, and planets feel our influence and change course. At last June's Unitarian Universalist General Assembly in Charlotte, North Carolina, I attended a panel discussion titled Building a Young Adult Environmental Justice Network. When they opened the floor for questions, I said, look, I understand it's not your job as young people to give me hope. But the truth is, as a longtime climate justice activist, I could use a little hope right now. Where do you see hope? Tim DeChristopher, who'd just been released from prison after serving 21 months for civil disobedience, protesting an oil and gas lease auction... Address the question. It's an absolute guarantee that things are going to get worse in our lifetime, he said. But young people feel hopeful, Tim explained, I'm paraphrasing now, because they see the ravages of climate change compelling the creation of a new society. We won't be able to produce enough goods and services to make people happy, but that never worked anyway. More than any generation in history, Tim said, baby boomers succeeded in creating the good life of materialism, and young people saw how it failed. Failed to satisfy emotionally and spiritually. Of course, there's no guarantee that the new society will be better. Corporations are hoping to influence the change in a very different way direction, but opportunities for transformation are boundless. Tim was giving voice to what Buddhist Joanna Macy calls active hope. Passive hope, Macy says, is about waiting for external agencies to bring about what we desire. Active hope is about becoming active participants in bringing about what we hope for. Active hope, she insists, does not flee the truth, no matter how daunting. There's no need to hide from bad news here, she writes. Indeed, it may be the very thing that provokes us to act in a way that makes our lives more satisfying. When we rise to a challenge, our strengths are activated, and our sense of purpose switched on. There is no guarantee that we will succeed in bringing about the changes we hope for, but the process of giving our full attention and effort draws out our aliveness. Pessimists dismiss optimists as hopeless dreamers who can't face reality. Psychologist Suzanne Sedgerstrom has found that the opposite is true. It's the optimists who respond to adversity with creativity, determination, and results. Rather than being discouraged by difficulty, optimists attack problems head-on. They look for solutions. They plan strategy. Faced with stress beyond their control, they respond by building existential resources. I'm grateful for Sedgström's research, but it does strike me as another example of science proving something folklore already knows. Two frogs fall into a bucket of cream. They struggle mightily, but no amount of thrashing and splashing can propel them out of the cream, and the sides of the bucket are too slippery to climb. They kick and they kick but they make no progress. Soon, they're exhausted. One says, it's no use. We're both going to drown here. The frog stops kicking and sinks to the bottom. But the other frog just keeps kicking and kicking and kicking all through the long night. And just as the dawn breaks, the frog is amazed to realize that its feet are no longer pushing against liquid, but against something increasingly solid. And with one final desperate kick, the frog leaps out of the bucket to safety. All that kicking had churned the bucket of cream into a tub of butter. Sometimes our efforts transform our environment in ways we could never have imagined. Hope saves lives. Less than three weeks ago, a U.S. bombing raid on Syria seemed inevitable. Here's some headlines. UK and U.S. finalize plans for military strikes. Read the August 27 headline in The Guardian. Strike against Syria is imminent, reported Reuters. Obama will bomb Syria, proclaimed Politico. What a difference two weeks makes. Listen to these headlines from the last few days. Obama relents on threat of force. The Boston Globe. Obama to explore diplomatic route on Syria. Reuters. And then yesterday, from The New York Times, U.S. and Russia reach deal to destroy Syria's chemical arms. What happened during those two weeks? People who thought that the United States attacking yet another Muslim country was a bad idea never got the memo that the attack on Syria was a done deal. The same progressive networks that helped elect President Obama twice mobilized to stop him from bombing Syria. MoveOn.org alone counted 220 candlelight vigils, 46,000 phone calls to Congress, 210,000 petition signatures. During the Congressional recess, voters buttonholed their senators and representatives in their home districts. Conservatives complained of the cost Liberals cited the perils of unilateralism, both warned of unintended consequences once the dogs of war are unleashed. Pope Francis led 100,000 people in five hours of prayer and witness in St. Peter's Square. We have perfected our weapons, he intoned. Our conscience has fallen asleep. And we have sharpened our ideas to justify ourselves. Violence and war, he cried, lead only to death. They speak of death. Forgiveness, dialogue, reconciliation, these are the words of peace in beloved Syria, in the Middle East, in all the world. Let us pray for reconciliation and peace. Let us work for reconciliation and peace. And let us all become, in every place, people of reconciliation. and pe- Then came Secretary Kerry's remarks, perhaps even an aside. Then came the Russian proposal. And for the moment, peace won. It's a tiny victory. Syria remains gripped in a terrible civil war. Violence plagues countries around the world, including our own. But it is a victory made possible by hope. On January 12th, 2010, a magnitude 7.0 earthquake ripped Haiti apart. Hundreds of thousands of Haitians died. A quarter of a million homes were destroyed. A week later, combing through the rubble of Port-au-Prince, rescuers doubted they would find anyone left alive. But Roger Saint-Fort never lost hope. Saint-Fort means strong saint. For six days, Roger Saint-Fort stood vigil by the mountain of debris that was all that remained of the bank where his wife, Jeanette had worked. For 15 years, Roger had shared every day of his life with Jeanette. He would not leave her now. I called Jeanette, Jeanette, Jeanette. She didn't answer me. But under 30 feet of concrete, in pitch darkness, Jeanette was calling out for Roger, just as he was calling to her. Every time I hear his voice, I said, I'm alive, I'm alive, please help me, I'm alive. Roger couldn't hear her. But hoping, hoping, he convinced an excavator to keep digging, keep digging, keep clearing away the stone. When they found her, Jeanette was singing, singing. Don't be afraid of death, she sang. God is here, over and over. Don't be afraid of death. God is here. A reporter asked Jeanette, did you think you would live? Yeah, she answered, why not? Hope kept her alive. Hope defeated death. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told us, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Nelson Mandela tells us, It always seems impossible until it is done. Let us hope infinitely and do the impossible. Amen. Ashay and blessed be.